0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And our scripture for this morning is from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, George Orr. I do want to say something. I didn't, I should have, I wish I had said this in the first service. I so appreciate... um, Jordan has so uh, adjusted to so much of what's been different. And I don't know if some of you benefited or received what she has done videos and. Not just, and you can kind of tell how good she is with kids. Just like when she reads a passage, it's like little words kind of come alive. You know, people that teachers, some of you are teachers or may work with kids. Uh, you can make stories. But I want to thank you for how wonderful you have in shifted in a pandemic to make things even just as much more fun for families and kids and all of us. Um, so thank you for that. Um, um, so anyway, really appreciate you, George. Um, and as you've heard a few announcements, uh, we're starting Christmas early, people. Um, I don't know about you, but we've already started putting out decorations in our house, uh, started to fill those spaces, um, you know. And, and people in our neighborhood are too. I was driving by, even last uh, last night or two nights ago, and, and you know, because it gets dark at 4:30, uh, never depressing. Um, and so I was driving by, I'm seeing it lights and things in people's homes already. And, um, yeah, I mean, so we're all really in the mood for that, and I think that's one reason we talked about even beginning this series early, uh, because we changed it. It actually was going to be a different series uh, that we had, and and because of uh, just where we are in life, we wanted to change... Our series, and also begin Advent early, and uh, so it's by God's kindness and providence, and us saying, "Hey, we're all doing this together." And you know, I was looking up to—I uh, was curious. I was—I was looking up articles or things online. I was thinking, are, are, "Is this like a national thing? Are people talking about this? Or are we just all kind of doing it?" And um, because uh, you think about it, uh, uh, you know, we're—we're going to be stuck indoors. What better to be stuck indoors with all the coziest things you want to have around you all year long? Because isn't it the worst time is when you take down your Christmas decorations and you're in your home and you're like, I didn't realize I had so much space, you know, like there's like a hole there and there, and you just love to surround yourself. And I was looking at, you know, even psychologically, people talking about why are we doing this? Not, not too far-fetched to figure this out, but because we want to surround ourselves with happiness. We're weary. We're tired. And that's why we changed our—not uh, because of that, but because uh, we realize how weary we are. <clears throat> so we changed our series uh, to uh, the famous, uh, one of the famous Christmas songs, "A Weary World Rejoices." A line from that, right? How in the world does a weary world rejoice? Advent. Advent. The word means arrival. It means a breaking in and. Uh, You know, but if you read the accounts in the Gospels, uh, the accounts of the Gospels, the narrative accounts of Jesus' life, before he's born, the announcement of him coming isn't this cozy, like, you know, little thing. It actually has met a lot with fear (laughs) and a lot of trepidation. It's, it's fascinating because if you go into it, you, you kind of hope with, with all the amount of coziness and, and ways that we want Christmas to be this warm, sweet thing, it actually was not met with that. In fact, Jesus' first announcement of his birth for a king in that time, King Herod, was met with, I've got to, I'm threatened. I need to take care of this. I need to to, to, to go kill all these, these families and children. I need to take care of that because it's going to be you know, when it was announced to shepherds, they weren't out in the field going, man, this is cool. They were freaking out that this angelic being was saying, there's someone coming. Even the, the, the mother of Jesus herself, when the angel came, she didn't say, wow, this is, what, what an honor. She first was afraid and scared. <laughs> Me? There's a reaction to it. What if, what if Christmas could be made more sweet, more hopeful, more rejoicing for a weary world if we understood that the one coming is actually more great and powerful and pure and holy and separate than us than we actually think? You know, sometimes we, we, we wanna make it Christmas more about Jesus yes he is taking on flesh he is becoming like us but what if we understand the other side of that coin too that he is actually this holy he is actually this pure he is actually the God of all heaven and earth whom we're about to read from Isaiah a picture of that character What if that was the case? Wouldn't it make Advent even more sweet because this is the one who is pure, who is holy, who is so far above that this is the one that chooses to break in to the unholy, the impure, the mess. That's what we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at this and we're looking at Isaiah uh, for our series. And Isaiah is a large book. It's a prophetic book. Where um, it was written during a time of uh, a lot of turmoil. And Isaiah himself, as you even see in here, and we sang it, holy, 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 right? Uh, His book is themed this way about who is God really and this characteristic of him going through of holiness. And we're gonna look at that this morning, and in the next few weeks, we'll look at it in different ways, not just holiness, but who is this God? Because what's going to cause us to rejoice is the one who's described as holy. The one who's described in Isaiah as the government is on his shoulders. The one who comes as a bruised reed, but not broken. And who comes and bring real redemption. The one who, where we're all weary, who brings the joy into the weariness because he becomes it himself. So we're going to look at this morning in two ways. What is holiness? And then how does it meet us? pretty simple. What is holiness itself? And then how does it meet us? How does it connect to us? How does the holy meet the unholy? Uh, sometime back, I read a article by, uh, um, about, uh, the Batman series. I don't know if you remember Christopher Nolan, who's a, a famous director. He's written a lot of, uh, he's, he's directed a lot of things and he's produced a lot of films When he first came out with this idea to create this Dark Knight trilogy as older, and it seems really old now, which is crazy, people thought he was nuts. They're like, what are you wanting to bring back Batman for? Like, why would you want to do that? But now we look back on that. It was was the Catapult series that really brought in all the superhero, you know, mumbo jumbo, whether you like it or not, I enjoy it. But it kind of brought it in to an era where it dominated the movie scene. But that was the genesis of it, and later on, there was another. You know, after that, they're like, "Okay, how do we restart all these great characters?" One of which was the Man of Steel, Superman. He wasn't the director of this film, but you can see he was um, he was an executive producer. And when he was interviewed about it, uh, he he said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, this is not a revisiting of the Dark Knight series because everybody thought this is going to be amazing. They're going to do with Superman what they did with Batman. Everybody loved it. He said, this is not a revisiting of the Dark Knight series. And to make a character like Superman relatable and relevant to people today is a very different task. I think he was really onto something with that. He wasn't, I don't think just talking about that series. I think he was talking about what has happened a lot in our film and TV is is how do we make those heroes, the people we look up to the most like us, how do we make them uh, relevant and relatable to us? And it's easy, I think, when we talk about God and his holiness to say, yes, he isn't like us. But sometimes what I think we've done when we sing songs like Holy, 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 or we read a passage like this where it, 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 it just brings out his holiness, we may have the tendency to want to either bring him down off more or less of the holiness or bring ourselves up to make ourselves a little more or build ourselves up before him. Because what holiness really is in its language, it means actually to cut. It means to separate. Holiness means a distinction. And it means a separation, that there really is a separation between who God is and us. In fact, it's interesting that this passage begins uh, in 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Why in the world? You know, this is the only place that a prophet uses the death of a king to, to mark like some sort of prophetic movement. The only place in the Bible. And I was curious, and I know it's kind of a marker. It says, okay, it's a marker first historically to say this was written in 740 BC. It helps us go, okay, this has a place in time. But I kind of did this nerdy deep dive kind of thing of thinking, there's got to be more to that. Why a death of a king? Why not just say in the year of the kingship, right? Or Uzziah. If you look in 2 Chronicles, a book I'm sure you all read all the time. 2 Chronicles is, is in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a historical book. Sounds like the Chronicles, right? Sounds like something uh, C.S. Lewis or someone uh, would write, right? It, it's in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 26 gives an account, the whole chapter, of this king. And I even started not only reading that, but I started reading like old ancient historians, like it's a guy named Josephus, who was a first century historian who wrote about these kind of events. And if you look at who Uzziah was, it talks about he was a great king. He was a king who, who at first it says, in the sight of the Lord, and this is kind of the phrase he used, he, he found favor in the sight of the Lord. He built Israel up. He made them, he brought them into economic, technological, I mean, all sorts of huge steps forward. It's amazing if you read it. And, and people around him were hailing him as the king. But Then in the passage comes a turn, and it's interesting to read ancient historians talk about it too, that he hit this moment of pride. He began to believe his own press. And there comes a moment where instead of him being the king over Israel, he tries to enter the temple and offer incense to God. Now, just as a note, no one does that but the priests. In fact, when he entered the temple with, and grabbed the thing of incense to try and do it, he was met with, it said, up to almost 70 priests to say, no, 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 you cannot come, you are not admitted into here. And with obstinance, he, he pushed back against them and continued to press in. So much so that it says that God, even in that moment, struck him with leprosy and that he would eventually die of it because of his thinking that he could manage and and, and approach God in a way that he did. Flash to this picture. Why is Isaiah having this vision? It's not just a marker of history. It's a picture of who's the real king that is unapproachable. Who's the one when Uzziah died where Israel thought we can, isn't that what we think? How do we bring God down a little bit so we can relate to him? Or how do we build ourselves up a little bit so maybe we can get just enough? And just like Uzziah, I know I've experienced the same thing. I forget, oh, is is God really that holy? Is he really that pure? Because that's what holiness is. He's not pure in one just element. He's pure in all. Notice these seraphim, these seraphim, which are superhuman beings. In fact, uh, I don't think that a seraphim, as as I was reading this and thinking, that that, that seraphim, these angelic type beings, this wasn't their common practice to do this. They were considered kind of high in the order of angels. But when they met God, when they were around him, this was their reaction, And they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Right, like we sang that. Why three times? You know when you go to a concert or something, and maybe you're talking to somebody afterwards, and you're trying to describe it to them. And you say things like, man, it was great. It was awesome. It was so good. And you just keep layering superlatives, right? Or you layer language that that may be very similar. What are you trying to say? You're trying to access your imagination to try and describe it in order to say this is the greatest of great. It'd be like if you see somebody who's like super tall and you go tall. They were tall, tall, right? You say it three times. You say it four or five. What are you doing? You're layering, you're accessing the fact that this person was tall. They could have said, and they didn't do this, but they could have flown around and said he's holy. But instead they go holy, holy, holy and sung it over and over and over. Because this holiness, this character, this purity, this separateness is so complete and separate that it's unlike like anything else. He holds a morality that none of us could grasp. He's separated not just in like one field or area or decision or vocation, but in all of them. And his holiness isn't like a celebrity where he's like, yeah, you can only have access if you have the right goods. I remember, um, it was interesting. I was, I was talking to Parker who, uh, leads our music. If you haven't met the Bradways, Parker and Kelly here up here, uh, such great folks. And they, they've musicians that travel and, uh, along with so, so many that do. And they told me, he told me a story when they played, uh, regularly in Monaco, um, they were asked like during the summer to go to Monaco yes Monaco in Europe and uh, be there for a summer and play with people like and I'm they they would not tell you this but I'm saying like play with people like Sting and others like in this concert thing and I was asking about this and he said uh we were talking about this passage and he told me a story about how they played and somebody told him when they came in they said now, if the king, uh, I mean, the prince of Monaco likes you. Now, literally, this is who brings them in, the prince. If the prince likes you, it's going to be a good summer for you. But if you don't, uh, it's going to be a long one. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, how does that work? Like, what, how is it long? Like, does he throw things at you? Like, what, is, what happens in Monaco when you're playing? Um, and it turned out, and it, what I love that he said, he said, yeah. And then we met him and he's like, you know, loves country music and everything else. But... But I thought that was so fascinating. If he likes you, then you're in. But if he doesn't, God's holiness doesn't work that way. His holiness is so separate from both, not just badness, but any goodness. He's pure. You know, we live in in Nashville. And um, it's easy, I think, when we see celebrity here. (laughs) Uh, it's, we, 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 I think we like herald this about our uh, culture here because when we see people here that are celebrities or are uh, of notoriety, uh, we're not like other cities. We're not going to do the paparazzi. We're not going to bother them. We're not going to, you know, stars, they're like us, right? Like we treat them that way. We're going to treat them though. And so we, what do we do? We see them, but yet inside we're like, oh my word. Could we be friends? You know, we hope that we are sitting next to him at a table or that we can get us up. You know, those kind of things. I remember at, at what I I think it's still there, Brick Tops. I think it's gone. That one over there, where it used to be a Houston's on uh, West End. Change to brick tops, and I remember uh, a few years ago—not a few, it was a, a back uh, gosh, six, seven years ago—when I saw Kerry Collins there. Now, if you remember the name Kerry Collins, he, still, he and his family still live here in, in the city. He was the quarterback for the Titans at the time, and this is back when the Titans were like—I mean, they—they they were eight zero. They were, you know, uh, Peyton Manning was still playing for the Colts. Tells you it was a while ago, and they, we were beating them. That's how good we were. And I saw him in there, and, and I looked at my wife, Megan, and I said, oh, there's Kerry Collins. I it. And so I just walked up to him, and I said, I don't know, what, what do you say? You, you've got a great arm, you know? Like, I don't know what I said. I, said, I think I said something like, uh, hey, really appreciate you. Uh, it's good to meet you. Thanks for what you do for the community and something like that, you know? And inside, of course, I'm like, can we be friends and hang out? And, and can I sit in the box and watch you every Sunday? Um, but I shook his hand and I just, and I have very big hands. His hand literally wrapped around mine. I felt like a child. And um, I remember they got seated and he was so nice. And he and his fa- he was with his family and still was just treating me like, you know, like I was just, and they go and sit down and Megan and I sit and we're wait- you know, as we're sitting there waiting for our food or maybe eating, you know, his, they're leaving and I do one of these, I'm like, And Megan goes, who was that? And I was like, oh, it was Carrie. You know, Carrie said bye to me. I mean, he was literally walking out of the restaurant, like waved at me across the restaurant. And I'm saying, "Bye." that's, that is kind of the, the, there's this element to that, this description here that we see of God, that there's this kind of like, we're hoping that we can get close, but he isn't that close. And that's what's wild about this. Look, look, the, Isaiah tries to give us an idea of what it's like to encounter someone who we see maybe in a field, maybe it's sports, maybe it's in academics, maybe it's in politics, maybe it's in something else, that God is not just great or or wonderful or perfect in one specific thing, but in all things. The description that he gives, and I love it, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That may be something you would think and expect God to be doing, sitting on a throne. High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. The idea of this is to give us a description that God's rule, his reign is so great, there is no standing room. Imagine, maybe you've been to a wedding where the bride had a huge train and they came possibly steps like this. And the train went out. And oftentimes when the, the bride will take steps up, there'll be people to straighten out the train. Imagine the train of the bride being so large that there's not a square inch of the floor where anyone can stand. No groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no one. The train covers the floor. What, what, what is that describing? It's showing the, the, the exaltation of that person. It's exactly what's happening. God's train is so large, there is no room for anyone to be in his presence. Even the reaction of these superhuman beings, these seraphim, all they can do is cover their face, their feet, fly, and sing, holy, holy, holy. They can just only it, it, talk about it. Opposite of like our celebrity culture here where we keep it in, they can do nothing but call out to the characteristic of his that says, you are so separate, you are so distinct, you are so unlike us, praise be to you. And it fills that. So much so, even the creation reacts to it. Listen to this, verse four, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Even creation itself, in the presence of God, becomes... What is inanimate becomes animated. Uh, I I, I was trying to think about what what would that be like? I I don't know if you lived in Nashville during the uh, eclipse, or maybe you've been a part of a solar eclipse, which is quite amazing. And I remember being, um, uh, we were able to go to a specific location that's kind of up high and and, um, trees around those things. It's it's one thing when the sun uh, is blocked out and you have the glasses on and you're watching and the... There's that. It's just amazing. And the light darkens, not to a shade of like being in a room, right, where you're 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 turning a light on and off, but this odd glow. It's almost confusing, like a light you've never seen before. And one of the things I remember um, hearing other people talk about with that wasn't just the the event of the darkness, but what everything else reacted to. In fact, people around me were talking about, "Do you hear it?" or did you see it or other people in other locations in the city said as soon as the sun was covered i started hearing animals come alive in the trees like bugs were making noises that they only make it in the evening birds that only come out at night started freaking out and chirping like creation began to react to this enormous presence that we had nothing to do with but we could only sit and watch and experience God's presence is that. It it, it overwhelms more than even the sun itself. It would be like us. Imagine us trying to be in his presence. It would be like us with a flashlight talking to the sun saying, hey, I can help out. His holiness is so great. It's so powerful. It's so his character. That he is that separated from us. But how in the world does it connect to us? Because that's what this passage is about. It begins here, though, it says, the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the what, palace? No, it filled the temple. Now that is huge. That's a very distinct thing, because... God's throne isn't in a palace. It isn't in a typical king like place. It's in a temple. And for centuries, the temple has been in that place for a lot of religions, Uh, a lot of cultures built. Uh, a temple. Maybe if you go to uh, ancient Greece or Rome, you see temples built up. And usually where they were located was in a place up on a hill with a marketplace right down below. Because oftentimes when you came to the temple, you were hoping that the God that you sacrificed here, you gave to at that temple, would bless your economy, would give to you, would help the city down below. And so there was this kind of connection. But But really, the temple was a place where the temporal met the eternal. It was a place where, where man said, There's a bridge. We, temples were built because we recognize there is something missing, there's a gap. And how do we connect to that? And for ages, what we have done is like Uzziah tried to say, okay, how do we bring the holy down or build myself up so I can present myself? Maybe if I present the right sacrifice, maybe if I present myself wonderfully, pure, nice, then God will bless me. That's how we've typically think that. But how do we do that? How does the temporal meet the eternal? Look what happens when he does. When Isaiah meets him and he sees what he sees, He says in verse five, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king. In fact, his language, woe is me, it may say this in another translation, woe I am ruined. He doesn't just come into contact with, oh man, I did something bad. I better get right before God because that's what, I think and we think. We need to get right before him. He's so overwhelmed with this separateness, this holiness, that he says, I, I am ruined. Myself, my being, my purpose, who I am is ruined. There was a German theologian in the 19th century that tried to describe this kind of thing. His name is Rudolf Otto, a great name, right? Uh, he talked about this was called the noumenal awe. This was his description. And the noumenal awe was <clears throat> where this uh, great, uh, it, was, it was a mysterious tremendum. It was an idea of something that you were so terrified by, so completely overwhelmed with, where you were afraid of, and yet so incredibly attracted to, you couldn't pull away from. This This connection. It's called numinous dread, or awfulness. Not awfulness, but awfulness. C.S. Lewis described it in some ways, uh, like uh, if there were two doors and you knew one had a tiger behind it and one had a ghost, that we would pick the ghost because there's this, this, this idea. I mean, this is why so many people, like horror movies, there's even commercials that make fun of this now, Geico or something like that. So why do people love horror movies? Why do people make the poorest, worst decisions in horror movies? Because they're getting this idea. Why don't open that door? The killer's behind it. You know, like that's the whole thing. We're always watching it. But we, why are they like the most popular movies? Because we can't turn away. There's something about it so fearful and yet so like, for real? There's something there. Well, wait, what Otto described here was a number of things. And I love how he put these to it. He put four things here. The first he said was, there's an element of stupor, of blank wonder, just astonishment when we come in contact with something this holy, this, this other. Like sometimes we do that when we're with, we see somebody in the, uh, like a, a celebrity or somebody in, 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 our, in our Nashville, right? We just kind of, you know, he's kind of like, hello. The next is a state of shudder. There's your held Speechless. And I love this, it begins. It touches the feelings, not just a feeling, all of them at once. Have you ever had that moment where you feel like you're so flooded with emotion that you feel panicked or almost just you can't move? Imagine all of your feelings being touched at once being in the presence of this. Next was a creature consciousness. It's stimulating the experience of self. It's, it's being so over aware of yourself that you see those things. You ever had that moment? You walk away from a conversation, especially with somebody that you highly respect or maybe it's somebody and it, like, you, you wish you'd, you're so glad you met finally and you go, oh man, I can't, did I say what I think I said? Did I get that out of my teeth? Oh my word, my shirt, what, you know. You're so over aware of self. And then finally, it's a sense of unworthiness, a need for covering, a need to hide because it's something so beautiful and wonderful that you can't see anything but the mirror of your own filth in the presence of this. This is where Isaiah is. He is overwhelmed with being connected to God. And being willing and able to see him in the temple, he is overwhelmed and it creates nothing but shame. And isn't that the fear we have when we approach him? Isn't that the thing we always dread? We want to bring him down or build ourselves up because we hate dealing with our own shame. But here's the reality. We have it. God doesn't leave us in it. He deals with it. We are to feel it some, but, we have to know what really gets to the heart of our shame. Some of us have read uh, Brene Brown, maybe seen her or heard her speak on TED Talks. Here's one of the things, she, here's her overwhelming thing about shame. If you haven't heard it before, I love how she says it. The principal obstacle to connection is shame. That the goal is connection. The sense that we are not fit for relationship, that if they really knew us or anything about us, this, that we would get rejected. The way to overcome our shame and to connect, how do we do that? Vulnerability and admitting our weakness. It's saying, whoa. It's exactly what we do when we come in the presence. How do we overcome our shame? It's not to make ourselves presentable to God. It's to say, God, come to me, whoa, I have nothing. To make ourselves vulnerable, humble, because what does God do for him? He says in verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. If we need atonement, I remember talking, I've, I've had this conversation a number of times and I think, I think we, we overwhelmingly filled this. I remember this specifically with one person that talking about sin, the woe part. I remember them even saying to me, they didn't even use that, they didn't use that language so much. So they said, I have this woe in my life. I see my sin, I see it. But when it came to atonement, it came to payment, which is what atonement is, it came to that payment They were like, why does anybody else need to pay it? Why can't I build myself up? Why can't I pay that thing? And the question over and over is, can we overcome our sin? Because once we feel like we've had some goals, maybe we can move past it. Can we really? Atonement is the fact that we see it so much so that we can't overcome it says, so Dan Ellender said, I love his author, he said, the dread of being found out is sufficient to fuel radical denial, workaholism, perfectionism, uh, and, and a host of other ills. But the fear is greater than simply losing relationship. It's the terror that if our dark soul is discovered, we will never be enjoyed nor desired nor pursued by anyone. See, here's what's amazing. What if if we understood fully that the most holy, the most separate from us is the one who pursues us the most. See, here's the great reversal of Advent. Do you know what Christmas really is? Christmas is the arrival of the one who is so separate, who never needed to come to break in. It's not actually about him bringing us to himself. It's about him breaking in to get us. It's about the throne room coming to us to pay, to lay down the cost. That's what atonement is. It's a payment for. It means this, that, and, and this is the description on, on the day. As we see this table, as we come before it, there's something that was described, it was called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, it was a specific day where the priest would pay for the sins of the people by bringing a sacrifice. And I want to read just briefly what was the process of cleansing, of purity, for that priest to do on the behalf of his people. The high priest, a week before, a week before that day, would go into seclusion and was completely alone alone. So that not to come into any contact with anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him and he'd wash to prepare his heart the night before the day of atonement. And he wouldn't sleep at all. But he'd pray and read God's word all night to purify his soul. And then on the day he would wash head to toe and clothe in pure linens. He went into the holiest of holies and offered a sacrifice. And then came out a third time and bathed head to toe clothed in fresh linens, and then went in to atone again for the sins. All that in public, full view of everyone, so that they could see that cleansing. Here's the thing. What if it took so much for a mediator to pay for those things, to be more for for us than one day? Because you and I know that one day, and then to the next, we've realized, are we able to come before God? What would it take? It would take a priest to give his actual body and blood, to cleanse us fully from those things. See, that's what Advent is. Christmas is God breaking in through his son to do this very work. See, this table is the most holy of places. We can't just come to this table because we think we deserve it. We have to recognize nobody here gave their body and blood to purify us. And yet it's the most what holy that comes to the unholy because it meets your sin in every reality and purifies you perfectly. More than just one day, every day, that cleanliness that the priest, our priest, Jesus had is your cleanliness. That's what your assurance is to come to this table. So you can come to this table with that hope and that delight and that rejoicing in Christmas. The Advent. Let's stand now. And as we do, we're going to recite...